I've got a quote here by Reverend Jim Wallace that I'd love to start with. Here it is. I say here's how you recognize a member of Congress. They're the ones walking around with their fingers up in the air. And then they lick their fingers and they put it back up and they see which way the wind is blowing. You can't change a nation by replacing one wet-fingered politician with another. You change a nation when you change the wind. You change the way the wind is blowing. It's amazing how quickly they respond. And so you look at Selma, Alabama, and how that led to a Voting Rights Act five months later. Johnson had told King just before Selma, it'll take five years to get a Voting Rights Act. King said, I can't wait five years. He organized Selma. And we've got to now be wind changers. Not lobbyists, but wind changers. How do we, by our service, by our doing in our lives, how do we then join together and knit together a movement that holds politics accountable? In today's Torah portion, Parsha Shlach, we witness Moses doing some negotiating with God, who seems to have plans of destruction in mind. And it's not the first time, nor the last, that we see a biblical character speak truth to power, namely, the highest power, and get their way, which raises a lot of questions. Are God's rules supposed to be debated? Is part of the wrestling with God we've talked about to include the laws that we accept as a Jewish people. As the world and society changes around us, does it call for us to interact with divine law in a different way? And what can we learn about our role as citizens from all this? To help answer these questions and more, we called up professor of law at University of California, Los Angeles, Jonathan Zasloff. Professor Zasloff teaches a wide variety of courses at UCLA. He holds a PhD in the history of American foreign policy from Harvard and a master's of philosophy in international relations from Cambridge University. But Jonathan also received smicha, which means he's an ordained rabbi, and he teaches Talmud to undergrad students in the UCLA community. We haven't talked a lot about Talmud on the show. It's been mentioned. But as a reminder, Talmud is the central book of Jewish rabbinic law, and it is studied at length. Professor Zasloff, as you'll hear, loves Talmud, loves Torah, and loves discussing the law. Today, we'll try to get a better understanding of how to engage with both Jewish and American law, the power that we have to change it, and why grappling with both is key to finding some greater meaning here on planet Earth. We are currently looking for volunteers here on the show, accepting as many as are willing. All we need you to do is rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you access the show. You can throw us some support over at patreon.com slash the study. Say hi on Twitter at study underscore show and tell a friend. This week, I'm sending some extra love to my allergy fam out there. Flowers are in bloom, and my sinuses are having a moment. Okay, on to the show.
back with another episode of Torah Study with Rabbi Matt Green coming to us from Brooklyn, New York. Welcome, Rabbi Matt. Hello again, Raviv. Hello, hello. And today we have the honor of being in conversation with Professor of Law at University of California, Los Angeles, Rabbi Jonathan Zasloff. Thank you so much for being with us. It's a great pleasure, honor to be here. You know, before we jump into the Parsha, I'd love to start with a question for you, Jonathan, as both a law professor and an ordained rabbi, I'm wondering right. how does the lens through which you interpret and analyze American law get applied in your reading of Torah and vice versa? I mean, one of the great things about this show is getting to hear from people uh, about their take on Torah. How do you come to Torah study? Right. Well, well, okay, there are two ways to think about it. You know, how does the, the lens of Torah study go to interpreting American law, and then how does interpreting American law go to Torah study? Right. Uh, right? So it, depending, on, you, can, you can do it one way or another. But quite often what will happen is I'll see things when I'm reading Talmud uh, that says, oh, I see the move that they're making there. I know that move. Uh, and, and just vice versa. I see the move that the justices are making there. That's like a move that, that the rabbis would make. There's always a, a way of thinking about. It. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to be uh, reductionist about it and say, "Oh, you know, Jewish law and American law—they're just the same because they're both legal systems." That that's that's a terrible mistake. But there are still moves that you make on legal reasoning that make a certain amount of sense. Uh, because of that, I can often see things that go back and forth, and and that's useful sometimes when. When I, either I'm teaching Talmud at law school or when I'm teaching uh, regular American law uh, in law school, I'm trying to think of a of a good example of you know how you know how this would how this would operate. And of course, because we're on the podcast right now, nothing is coming to mind. There's a, a the an interesting example uh, where perhaps my favorite Talmud story is where uh, Moses sort of lectures God and says, "Could you please hurry it up while you're writing the Ten Commandments?" Uh, and why are you spending all of this time putting these little crowns on the Torah letters? And and God says, well, you know, in a thousand years, there's going to be this guy named Akiva ben Yosef who will be able to deduce hundreds of laws from every little piece of every jot and tittle on the on the Torah scrolls. And and Moses can't believe this. And he says, well, you know, show me this guy. That's amazing. And God says, okay, fine, turn around. And Moses finds himself in the middle of Rabbi Akiva's study hall. So basically, he's put him in a time machine. <laughs> Moses walks to the back of the room. He sits in the back row, the back row, right, where the dumb students sit, Moshe Rabbeinu. And finally, Akiva gets to a point where the students say, wait a minute, where did you get that one? And Akiva says, oh, well, this was a law that was given directly to Moses at Sinai, even though Moses himself has no idea what's going on. And there's a a place where the Gemara says it, and Moses was relieved, that he sort of got the idea about the way in which the law and the conception of law evolves through time. Uh, in the same way, I think that if you brought some of the founders back to nowadays, they would have no idea what's going on. But both in the way that, that Chief Justice John Marshall famously said, this is a constitution we're expounding. It is supposed to develop and evolve through time. The rabbis had a similar kind of concept of Torah evolving and changing through time. It doesn't mean that you can't just ch change whatever you want, but that, that 
what the Constitution does is it gives certain groups authority to be able to change interpretation. And what a lot of what Torah is, is giving the rabbinate the ability to change interpretations through time. And so in that sense, there are there that is at least a similarity. It's not the same thing, but it's a similarity. And and uh, and at least when I'm teaching secular students about Talmud, uh, they can kind of get that. And and with a lot of uh, you know modern American Jews, when I'm trying to teach them, you know, I'm saying, well, you know, the Constitution is like this. Well, it's a little bit like Talmud in this way. Uh, people can at least see commonalities. It doesn't mean they're the same, but it means they have some commonalities. I mean, Rabbi Matt, do you, do you find that part of your responsibility as a rabbi is to interpret law based on where we are uh, in, in this moment in history? It's an interesting question because I'm a reform rabbi. And yeah. actually what that means is I'm mostly a party planner. But I think more <laughs> than that, more than that, it is true that people do come to me with questions about, can I do this or should I do that? Or is it permissible to have a wedding before Shabbat and before Shabbat ends? And of course, the traditional answer would be no. And yet I do weddings on Shabbat. And so, you know, we kind of talk about those boundaries. But I think that it is absolutely the role of any rabbi of any denomination, although it's perhaps more uh, dramatic in the non-traditional forms of the rabbinate to create new boundaries and to create new rituals and to think about their role, our role, in changes in the Jewish community. Hmm. Hmm. I think that one of the things that that, that Rav Matt is talking about is you know, rabbis have the role of change through interpretation. I would argue, although I'm not sure, you know, to what extent Matt would agree with this, that there's a notion of an interpretive community. It can't just be one person deciding, I'm going to go off on my own. There are Talmudic stories about how you try to go off on your own and you get excommunicated. Uh, but there is a notion of a relevant interpretive community that can create law through a gradual process, and sometimes even a not-so-gradual process. And I would hope, uh, you know, as, as uh, I, I'm a very long-held uh, law professor and a relatively rookie rabbi, that we can, in the non-Orthodox world, we can develop that kind of, of interpretive community uh, where we can learn from each other and begin to move Jewish law in a way that would be that would conform to the model in a lot of ways that the original rabbis believed in. You know, they were not people who believed that, oh, well, you know, that's the way the law is and that's the way the law is and we're never going to change it. The way they tried to adjust these things is to say, we can change the law, but it has to be through a process of, of communal interpretation. And to some extent, that's in one sense, one could argue that's the way that all law changes through the formation of different interpretive communities that then can come in by looking at, you know, what law means and what law doesn't mean. I wonder, Professor, if you may shed some light on the history of this, and maybe you aren't an expert about this, but in the 19th century, it seems like a lot changes vis-a-vis -vis the evolution of Jewish law, which is to say that in 19th century Germany, new modes of Jewish expression emerge the reform movement, positive historical Judaism, which becomes the conservative movement, modern orthodoxy, etc. And at least in the sort of broad strokes history I've always been told or thought about, that's the moment when orthodoxy, with a capital O, 
puts its foot down and, and sort of stops the natural evolution of Jewish laws. That, of course, Jewish law continues to change even in orthodox settings, but that's the moment where rabbis make more fences around the Torah and try much more, much harder, let's say, to, to stop the evolution of Jewish law. That's certainly the way I've always understood it. I mean, you, the, the, I, whether, you know, whether that is the current cutting edge in Jewish studies scholarship, I don't know. <laughs> Um, but that's certainly why I understood it. I mean, you have people in the 19th century, like the Khatam Sofer, who basically said, okay, you know, we're not going to change anything. And there is nothing new. <laughs> Essentially, there is nothing new in the Torah. And I, and I suspect that to some extent that happens when you, when you have people who feel that their cultural or social authority is threatened. And that doesn't necessarily mean personal, like, oh, my cultural authority is threatened and that's bad because I'm an egotist. Rather, they think my authority is threatened and that's a harm for the community. I mean, we don't have to we don't have to think about them as as being dishonest or or egoistic. I'm not suggesting that. But when there is a sense of a threat to a community, there is often a, a reaction to that. And that's why you can have, you know, Orthodox with a big O. That's true. I mean, that's true in American Christianity. I mean, the notion of fundamentalism in American Christianity, that didn't exist before the late 19th century. I mean, it literally comes from this book called The Fundamentals um, that was a reaction to cultural modernism. So it makes sense that when you are confronted with changes, that that would be uh, that is a natural reaction. It doesn't mean I agree with it. it doesn't mean I think it's a good thing. Uh, but it's natural and in many circumstances, many circumstances reasonable. I guess I want to respond with three quick things. The first being that over the millennia of rabbis existing and interpreting Jewish law, Jewish laws changed radically. When we think about what the Talmud is, it was a bunch of creative people gathering and trying to reimagine Judaism. Right. And exactly. that's what it was. And it seems that in the 19th century, it changed for orthodoxy because of this impulse that you're talking about, this need to protect, this fear of change, um, this possibility of, of you know, losing everything, right? And that's what we understand today to be orthodoxy. But it was always changing. And, and so the second thing I'd say is that I've always admired conservative Judaism. And this is like a rarity that I'm going to say that on this show <laughs> or in my life. But I've really always admired... You can edit this out, Raviv. You, 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 you don't want to. That's it. I want to keep it. I want to be on record saying I admire yeah. conservative Judaism because from the very beginning, they've said, we're going to keep our fidelity to Jewish law. We're going to keep what matters to us and try to tie everything back to the past. But we're going to accept modern science and we're going to accept modern ways of being and create new pathways in Jewish law. And, and that's this kind of interpretive community that you're talking about. And the last thing I'd say is, I think about this in my own work frequently as a reform rabbi, because there is a group of reform rabbis who get together, who serve on a committee, because that's what rabbis do, to, um, <laughs> right, exactly. to, you know, to come up with some kind of set of norms of what is reform halakha, what are reform Jewish laws. Because whether or not they're successful in getting a bunch of reform Jews to follow whatever they say is another matter. But they have a self-awareness that it's important to have a community that accepts mm -hmm. these changes. And it seems right, that right. over the course of Jewish history, big changes in Jewish law always required Jews to accept them. 
and a, sure, and absolutely. some kind of consensus. So right. Yeah, I mean, well, that happens all the time. In the Talmud, they'll say, well, you know, we would do it this way, except that the community will never accept it. So we have to have another particular way of doing things. It's it's interesting that that you uh, suggest that somehow, well, you know, there's a question of whether Reformed Jews would accept it. It's also always a question of whether conservative Jews would accept something, right? I mean, I'm not a conservative rabbi. Uh, I grew up in the conservative movement. I'm not a conservative rabbi. But, you know, that that's always the joke in, in conservative Judaism. Well, I don't keep I don't keep kosher. My rabbi keeps kosher for me. It's very interesting that if there are reform rabbis getting together, trying to set up an interpretive community to establish something called reform halacha, in what way is that similar or different to, say, the conservative movement's Committee on Jewish Law and Standards? And is it really necessary that this is really, I realize I get very heretical here, to have two different movements? Or is is there a historical basis for the reason why you have two different movements and that within, you know, however long it's going to take, we're going to realize that that's not really the reason, you know? And the, the, somebody once asked me, I think, you know, you know, why, why, why is there an American Jewish committee and an American Jewish Congress, although there's not much of a Congress anymore? But why are the two? Well, the answer is 110 years ago, somebody got into a fight at some point or another. And so then what happens is the institutions develop, but maybe the institutions will be coming together again. And that we'll, we'll really have, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised that we'll essentially have, you know, orthodox and heterodox and that it will change in that way. You know, at this point, uh, I, I'm not sure that it would be that much different. To, uh, a lot of the things that Reform Judaism pioneered 50 years ago are now accepted as, well, obviously, by conservative Judaism, female rabbis, openness to LGBT, uh, even things like intermarriage, whereas a lot of the things that conservative Judaism insisted on 50 years ago is also things that Reform Judaism is now thinking, well, yeah, maybe that's right. More Hebrew in the liturgy, for example. More uh, attention to halacha, if I'm being accurate in my my uh, understanding of what Reform Judaism is doing. So that in one sense, they're kind of both coming together. Sometimes you, you push the envelope and it works, and sometimes you push the envelope and it doesn't work. And you think, okay, this is kind of where we are, whether there's a uh, even though there are so many things that people disagree with, there may be a new consensus uh, about you know how you put these things together. Uh, I you know obviously I, there's there's no point in trying to predict it, but it, it might be there. So we're talking a lot about interpretation, reading laws, and all the different ways in which uh, Jews do and try to do so. Um, I think to help give our listeners a little context for why we are having this conversation. Uh, Rabbi Matt, would you be down to give us a quick drosh, a uh, Parsha summary for this week, and we'll hop right back in. Absolutely. I mean, I mean I, I'm really glad that Professor Zasloff mentioned the, the famous story about Moses and God, and, because here we find, well, I guess most of the Parshas have to do with Moses and God, but here we find them again, having another kind of exchange that's actually similar to the one we just heard about. But before we get in, let's say this Parsha is called Shlach or Shlach Lecha. It was, in fact, my bar mitzvah portion. Oh. So do it that way, you will. Well, and well. God tells Moses to send men to scout the land of Canaan. That's what Shlach means. Send forth or have them go forth. And these men are the famous 12 scouts. They go and check out the land, the land of Israel, and see if it is indeed a land 
filled with milk and honey. And they come back and they say, it is, in fact, that. It's a wonderful place with lots of possibility. But we saw giants there. We saw Anakites. There are giants there, and we can't possibly overcome them. And when they say that publicly, the people freak out and cry to Moses. And they say their usual line that it would have been better had they stayed in Egypt and um, as opposed to being destroyed by these giants in the land of Israel. And as they're freaking out, Joshua and Caleb, two of these 12 scouts, say, actually, we can do this. Actually, the Israelites can and will conquer the land because God will be with them. And therefore, all they have to do is believe. And at this point, the people get mad at Joshua and Caleb and pelt them with stones in their distress. But God then steps in, and this is where we get into our real conversation here. God steps in and says that God plans to disown the people for their unruliness, for their rebelliousness. And Moses convinces God not to do that. This is not the first time that Moses has been in that position. And he specifically says, what will the Egyptians think? That this God brought this people out of Egypt just to destroy them. And Moses repeats God's own words from way back in Exodus that God says that God is a God who is slow to anger and abounding in kindness, etc., etc. And Moses kind of sweet talks God into not killing all the people. And finally, God agrees to not destroy the Israelites. God does kill the scouts who were most rebellious and does punish the people by forbidding that generation from entering the land of Israel. But the point is that Moses is capable of convincing God to change God's mind. And I think that's where we get into this conversation about rabbinic change or Jewish change. And it's clear that from our earliest sources, even before we think about the rabbis who invent the Judaism we now know, that our greatest stories have to do with human beings changing God's mind. And so that kind of sets the stage for a conversation we've already begun. And I think, Professor, I'm kind of curious to take that idea of human beings changing God's mind. And I wonder if we might think about how Jewish law changes uh, today in thinking about, like, how can we really change things that are God's commandments? Like, you may not know or you may not have a sense of how self-conscious Orthodox rabbis are about changing something that could be the word of God, but what do you make of that? The idea of change being actually changing what God wants us to do. Well... Wow, I mean, we could we could spend weeks talking about that one. Uh, yeah, Raviv, how many hours do we yeah, have? As many as we want. There's an interesting question about what it means for God to want anything. Hmm. Uh, it of course raises the question. I mean, if we say, you know, does this mean that we are violating the will of God? That begs the question about what is the will. Um, you know, is God a sentient being such that God has a will? But maybe the idea is that God has many wills at once, that on the one hand, God wants us to do something, but on the other hand, God also wants there to be a process of interpretation and change. So it's quite possible that by changing we are 
violating an older will of God, but we're actually maintaining the meta-will of God who wanted this particular process. Uh, this is why Talmud is so unbelievably brilliant. I mean, it's just, it's just brilliant. Because what they did is they came up with this theory. Um, and again, I don't think it was intellectually dishonest. They came up with this theory of the oral Torah that was different but supplementary to a written Torah. And because of that, they were able to change things because really all they were doing is going back to what was originally handed to Moses at Sinai. And they made it stick. And I think they made it stick because, among other reasons, they can't be in the position, if you get to the point where you find that if what God's will means is something that is, say, unspeakably cruel, it's not crazy to think about, well, wait a minute, if that's what we think God's will is, maybe we're really misunderstanding something. And so perhaps we didn't really think about it. I mean, this is another one of my favorite stories. Uh, I'm sure Rob Matt has taught this a million times. There's, a, there's an infamous passage in Deuteronomy about if you've got a son who is stubborn and rebellious and won't listen to his and won't listen to his mother and his father, then what you do is, is his mother and his father are supposed to take him to the edge of the town to the elders and say, our son is stubborn and rebellious and he's a glutton and a drunkard and we can't do anything with him and they're supposed to stone him. And the rabbis didn't like this very much. And so in this wonderful series of passages that I always teach, uh, uh, to, to my Talmud students is the rabbi say, well, you know, what does it really mean to be stubborn and rebellious? So the first thing they say is, well, it's a stubborn and rebellious son. Okay, so daughters don't count. And then they say, well, wait a minute. It can't be somebody who's too old because if he's too old, then he's really not a son. But it can't be somebody who's too young because if he's too young, then that means that he doesn't have, uh, that he's, he's not old enough to actually make decisions. So at some point or other, I think his name is Rob Crispadi, says, okay, well, it's got to be three, it's in three months in between being 12 and a half and 13. But that's not good enough either. Because the point is that he's got to be a glutton and a drunkard. But how much do you have to eat in order to be a glutton? And how much do you have to drink in order to be a drunkard? And, and, and wait a minute, if his mother and his father say this, then maybe his, his mother and his father have to have the same voice, and they have to look the same. And they, they I mean, they really go into the meeting. This becomes, you, you can imagine this is almost like a rabbinic drinking game. Aha, I got another one for you. I'll give you another one that makes it even worse. And so, so he finally gets to the point where somebody says, all right, you know, the, Rabbi Yehuda then finally says, there never was a stubborn or rebellious son, and there never will be. Uh, and that's, and in one sense, that's how you do it. But this is where, this is where I think what it means to be Jewish is so crucial. Where somebody asks, okay, wait a minute. If there never was a stubborn or rebellious son, essentially, why the hell are we doing this? Why are we bothering with this? And the answer is because God told us to expound the law. 
And that's a, a notion of what legal interpretation is that is that is very foreign to Americans, but I think is is almost the nub of what it means to be Jewish. God told us to expound the law. So even if we get to the point of saying there never was a stubborn, rebellious son and there never will be, the point is that we spent that time getting to that point. And and this always, you know, my students then always kind of take a look at me and say, well, wait a minute, you know, if you're going to that point, why do this? Why expound the law like this? To which, at least in my view, the answer is, why do anything? Why are we here? What's the point of human existence? It's really a fundamental existential question. Why are we here? And for Jews, the answer is to expound and argue about the law. It's, it's, it's almost the Jewish equivalent of Aristotle's famous injunction that the, 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 you know, the, uh, a non, the, the, the unexamined life is not worth living. Maybe it was Socrates. Uh, the way it, the unexamined life for Jews is not worth living. And the way in which we examine life is to, is to examine the law. That's what we do. That's what it means to be human. In one sense, you could argue not only does Jewish law change, if Jewish law doesn't change, it's not Jewish law. Huh. It just has to change according to a particular process and a particular interpretive community. One other example that comes up from this, which I think is, is true, I think it's in Brachot, where they're talking about the Beit Midrash in heaven. Now, for a modern legal way of thinking about this, that makes absolutely no sense, right? If you have a bait midrash, and why have a bait midrash? Why study the law in heaven? You want to know what the answer is to a legal question? The big guy's up there. Just go ask him, right? But the point is, that's not the point. <laughs> the point is that you're studying the law in heaven because that's what it means to be a human being, even if you're a human being that does not exist on earth. Now, it's not a mitzvah in the traditional sense, but but th that's – so y you can't have if, – if all you do is sit there and say, this is what the law is and we all memorize it, that's not being Jewish. Then you're being like the teacher in, in a peanut – in one of those peanut specials where all the teacher does is go, wah, 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 wah. That you can't do. This month, One Table is celebrating the joy of community that comes with our chosen family. Celebrate Shabbat with your chosen family in person. Now, with up to 20 guests outside and up to 10 vaccinated individuals indoors. Visit onetable.org slash pause to watch and create your next Shabbat dinner for your crew. That was beautiful, and I feel like I could hug you right now for that sermon. Oh, that well, next time I'm in Brooklyn. <laughs> next time, yes, we can, yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> But I think that, you know, one thing I love about that idea of interpreting Torah and the law in heaven is that if you are a sinful person, if you're a wicked person who doesn't like studying Torah, then it's essentially like hell for you, right? So that's something I, I love about that whole thing. But also, I, 
you're absolutely right that I feel like that talking about the wayward and rebellious son is kind of like the locus classicus of thinking about how rabbis reason things out of existence that they didn't like. And they were able to change the law by still having fun with the interpretation and that this interpretive process right. is what it's all about. Something that right. kind of freaks me out is when Jews change things dramatically without going through an interpretive process. And of course, you know, God bless, whatever you want to do, it's fine. I but agree completely. I think that we, you know, like when we, when we make changes that are just because we feel like it's the right thing to do to who knows what, something that feels modern or progressive, um, without having a reasoning from the text, we're in danger of losing something. And we also lose the kind of heft of the process itself. I agree. Totally. Um, but I do want to throw out one idea that, and you know, maybe this is something you've encountered, I'm sure it is, given your, your background, that the, I learned that text about the wayward and rebellious son uh, at Svara a few years ago. Um, Svara, for those of you listening who don't know, is a queer yeshiva based in Chicago. They're phenomenal. And their whole shtick is that Svara, which is our sort of informed moral intuition, is one source of Jewish law, that any of us who are informed moral beings can intuit what the right thing is to do. And they specifically bring us to Menachem Elon, who is a famous Israeli legal scholar who says there are five sources of of Jewish law, that there is Kra, which is Torah verse itself, there's Minhag, which is custom, Maaseh, which is precedent, um, Takana, which is sort of like the legislation of the rabbis, and finally there is Svara, that every single one of us has the informed moral intuition to think about laws, to possibly even change laws for ourselves. And I, I mean, they, they use that in Sfara to explain that just like the ancient rabbis changed laws that they felt were no longer applicable to their lives, so can we. And I think that's so powerful. But the reason Sfara is able to do that is because they're studying Talmud. They're engaging with a... Yeah, a pro- they know the text. Precisely. It's not just, this is what I happen to think. That's exactly right. And I think that Raviv and I have been dwelling on this question, and I'd like to just get your insights too. And it sounds like you've already, you know, you've already shared a little bit about how you feel that like, how can we change laws or how can we change Jewish practice without having that knowledge or without having that engagement of the text? Or is it impossible to make? I'm not sure we can. I think you have to be connected to the text. I mean, in that sense, I'm more of a traditionalist. You have to be connected to the text. But here's the good news, and particularly good news for anybody who's listening to this podcast. It's so much easier now. It's so much easier now. There are so many. I mean, look, I, I agree. I mean, uh, the, the, you know, the old rabbinic injunction is that if you, if you read Talmud in translation, it's like kissing somebody through a veil. But it's still true. There is so much more now that is available in English. And there's a great tradition of great Jewish texts in the vernacular as well. Bit of a fudge, but, you know, the, the, the Maimonides' famous text, the, the Guide of the Perplexed, was written in Arabic, which at the time was the vernacular. I mean, there's a reason why he wrote that. It wrote it in that way. There is so much more that is available. Rabbi Steinsaltz, who not only did a new version of the Talmud, but is now has translated the whole thing. 
you can pick this up when you know when I was growing up I mean there was so much wrong with the 70s and this was one of them there was nothing involving between not having text in English and polyester the 70s are sometimes a tough time but but now there is so much of this there are so many podcasts I do uh, the the page of Talmud every day, the practice called Daf Yomi. It's so easy. I do a pod. I have a podcast that I listen to literally when I'm walking the dog. There are so many other ways, and then I review it through the email from My Jewish Learning. Or there's a there's a wonderful guy who does a blog called Talmudology, which is all about science in the Talmud. There are so many ways to engage. One of my favorite. I mean, I, I wish it could happen. It's L.A. where nobody takes public transportation. Apparently, actually, it's not true. It's the biggest public transportation system in the world. But but you know, for New Yorkers, they they have to they have to make fun of L.A. Uh, but apparently, there's a commuter train from far rock away to Manhattan in the morning and one of the cars of that train from far rock away to Manhattan is the Dafyomi car what and so when you're commuting it I don't know how long it takes to get from far rock away to to Manhattan I've never even been to Far Rockaway. The only thing I know about Far Rockaway is Richard Feynman was from there, there, which is pretty good. That's pretty good. If it takes, what, 40, Rob, Matt, what, 45 minutes, an hour to get from Far Rockaway to Manhattan? Maybe more. Then you can, you can, you can do a page of Talmud in that time. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so there are so many ways to engage with text. And I must say the Orthodox have been great on this, and they, they got this from the very beginning. The Orthodox figured this out from the very beginning when the web came on and when when podcasts came in. They are technological. I mean, you know, for for often a group of people who who, did, who are suspicious of science, they are certainly not suspicious of technology getting toward to people. So, and I think that Svara, as as Rav Matt says, Svara is one crucial source of the changing and developing Jewish law, but it is one. And you have to develop the other things, too, in my humble opinion. I guess I'm curious if there is any analogy or any parallel path within the American judicial system. Do we have any of these same processes? Well, I, you know, I think that in, in one sense we do. Gerald Torres, who's at Cornell Law School, and Lonnie Guinier have talked about this idea about demos prudence, about how there are different interpretive communities that can develop their own notions of what law is. Uh, Robert, the late Robert Cover, who wrote a, a very, very famous article uh, in the early 1980s called Nomos and Narrative, have talked about how different interpretive communities did this. You know, there's something odd when a when the forward for the Harvard Law Review starts with a quote from Yosef Karo, who was the guy who put together the Shulchan Aruch. Uh, you know, that was debated by a, a professor named Suzanne Stone, who teaches at Cardozo, who's one of the great sort of modern uh, Talmudic theorists in in law school now. You know, I think the question at all times is: Do these notions can the way that people change their views of what law are, can they make it stick? I'm still conservative or slash cynical enough to say that when you are dealing with a legal system that has state power, which American law does, and for the most part, Jewish law has not, at some point or another... Changes in the law have to confront the power of the state. 
it doesn't matter how much you can have your interpretive community come to an inter- understanding of the law if the state has power and will put you in prison for it. I, I think that it, it's important to understand that things are quite different in that way. That being said, social movements can have a very, very powerful way of affecting the way in which things develop. Here is a good example uh, from last year's Supreme Court term that I, I, I thought was it wasn't it, it was remarkable for it not being remarkable. So there's this a case called Bostock, which had to do with does Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which bans employment discrimination based on, among other things, sex, does that cover sexual orientation? Now, we know to, to almost a complete certainty we know that the Congress that passed the Civil Rights Act in 1964 did not intend banning discrimination on the basis of sex to cover sexual orientation. I mean, we, the, 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 we know that. But it's also true that starting in the late 60s, uh, New Yorkers will say it started at the Stonewall Club. Uh, those of us from Los Angeles will understand that, in fact, it really started at the Black Hat Cafe in Los Angeles uh, with uh, protests by LGBT people and the growth of the gay rights movement. It is now at the point we are given, and there are a lot of reasons why I believe that it, it has been the most successful social movement of the last 30 years, that you get to a very conservative Supreme Court that sees Title VII banning discrimination on the basis of sex and comes up with a way of saying, even though we know that the Congress that wrote that law did not intend it, to ban sexual uh, ban discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, we are nevertheless going to hold that it does, and it is now the law nationwide. Discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation is illegal under Title VII. Now, yes, they had a legal theory as to how that worked, and Judge Gorsuch, Justice Gorsuch, who wrote the opinion, has his own shtick about why that worked. But the reason why, in my view, he felt that he could do that, and really, in many ways, he wanted to do that, is because of the social movement of of LGBT rights that made it seem like, well, obviously, that's the right thing to do. When I was growing up, I always thought, well, it's a little silly to to discriminate against somebody on this basis. But but the idea that, I mean, it's it's still true that as late as 2004, George W. Bush and Karl Rove could put ballot measures on the ballot to ban gay marriage because they thought that that would help Republicans in the November election. Aside from a few states, Alabama, Mississippi, South Carolina, etc., that would be true nowhere else today. And that that really changed the culture. And that change in that culture helped change what the jurisprudence was 
Uh, and I think it also works the other way around. Sometimes you will have a jurisprudence that changes things that then allows the growth of certain kinds of social movements. Um, so I think that that actually does happen. But it happens, I think, in a more difficult way, some ways in a good way, some ways in a bad way, because then it does in Jewish law, because Jewish law doesn't have state power, and American law does, and so you have to confront the state. It doesn't matter what my interpretive community, if, if I'm living in Alabama now, it doesn't matter what my interpretive community thinks about abortion, or rather, it matters a hell of a lot less what my interpretive community thinks about abortion uh, than it would say in a Jewish community where you could have a, an interpretive community saying, yes, we believe in abortion or we don't. I think that one way of putting all these pieces together is to say that if, Professor, we've already established that we think it's important for Jews to have facility with texts in order to make changes, um, that for all these people who want to make changes, perhaps the goal should be to educate them or to, to, to bring more text into their conversation. Absolutely. It's easy. I mean, that's the thing. It's now gotten to the point where it's easy. What happens is people get scared away because the, a lot of the texts are in another language that they might not know. And if, the, if for even people who have at least some Jewish education, their Jewish education comes from Hebrew school and they were young and so they hated it or they, they've forgotten everything. Um, but it's, it's so easy at this point. I shouldn't say it's so easy. That's not, it's not fair. It's easy for me because I'm a professor and I have leisure time. You know, somebody who's working, you know, somebody who works in fulfillment uh, and is working, you know, 16-hour shifts, it's harder. So, granted. But I, but I think it's easier than people think. Uh, and it's, it's our job as rabbis to try to – we need to be able to figure out a way just to get Torah to people so that it's easier for them. Um, so one thing I'm, I, I, I apologize for this, but it's just one thing I'm thinking about starting this summer is I'm putting together a booth that says rabbinic help, five cents, the rabbi is in, and I'm going to take it to a local, uh, a local outdoor mall and just show up on late afternoon, Friday afternoon, early, early evening on Friday evening. And just since people are going to be there anyway, they can stop for two minutes and get a little bit of Torah. Because they're there anyway. And we have to figure out new ways to get Torah to people. This podcast is a good example, getting Torah to people. A lot of the work that Rabbi Matt is doing in Brooklyn is new ways of getting Torah to people. In this sense, we are writing, I mean, in, in the same way that the rabbis 2,000 years ago were these kinds of itinerant teachers figuring out new ways getting Torah to people. Temple's been destroyed. You can't sacrifice animals anymore. How are we going to get Torah to people? So we have to get Torah to people in different ways. What we are doing now, in one sense, is, you know, in, this, in the way that there is a Talmud Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem Talmud, and a Talmud Bavli, what, with a Babylonian Talmud, what, what our job now to do is to write HaTalmud HaArtsot HaBriti, to, to write the American Talmud. But the reason why Talmud worked is because it changed through a repeated engagement with that text. You can only change it if you're reading from the text. But but while that's a demand, I must say, and, and I don't know how either of you think, or Rob, Matt, maybe that's the reason why you got into the rap in it. One of the things that's so exciting about this is that when you're reading 
Talmud, or you're reading Mishnah, or reading Pirkei Avot, which you can read in 25 minutes and then start going over and over again, is you're sort of living in history. You're part, you are sitting at a table at a conversation that has been going on for 3,000 years. You're not like, you know, me. I'm not just some schnook in West Los Angeles, although I am some schnook in West Los Angeles. I'm also part of a worldwide, world historical conversation. And for me, at least, and for many modern Jews, I think that helps give meaning to our lives. Why are we here? Because we're here having the great conversation. And the great conversation is something we can participate in. Uh, we just, you know, need to keep thinking about new ways to make it better. Rabbi Professor Jonathan Zasloff, thank you so much for helping us to bring Torah to more people, including myself. That is this journey for me, and I'm just really grateful for your time and uh, willingness to join uh, us and, and take apart some Torah together. Thanks thanks for being That's here. That's great. I've, I've loved it. That's great. Great what you're doing. Wonderful what you're doing. I hope everybody listens to this podcast, and not simply because I'm on it. It helps. I know it helps. <laughs> and Rabbi Matt Green, thank you so much for being here. This has been just a joy. It's always a pleasure, Raviv. And thank you, Professor, very much. Thank you, Rabbi Matt. To all of our listeners, Shabbat Shalom. The study is produced by Evan Scott Nicholas and me, Raviv Ullman. My co-host today was Rabbi Matt Green, and our guest was Professor Rabbi Jonathan Zasloff, artwork by Julia Pott. I'll see you next week.